6. Months passed. Parthis became festal, became Aurim, and the misty squalls of summer gave way to the harder driving rains of winter. The seventy-seventh year of Gandalo became the seventy-seventh year of Morgante, the city father, lord of Noose and Trowel. Eight of the thirty-one catchfire orphans, somewhat less than adept at the thief-maker's delicate and interesting tasks, swung from the black bridge before the Palace of Patience. So it went. The survivors were too preoccupied with their own delicate and interesting tasks to care. The Society of Shades Hill, as Locke soon discovered, was firmly divided into two tribes, streets and windows. The latter was a smaller, more exclusive group that did all of its earning after sunset. They crept across roofs and down chimneys, picked locks and slid through barred embrasures, and would steal everything from coins and jewellery to blocks of lard in untended pantries. The boys and girls of streets, on the other hand, prowled Camors alleys and cobbles and canal bridges by day, working in teams. Older and more experienced children, clutchers, worked at the actual pockets and purses and merchant stalls, while the younger and less capable, teasers, arranged distractions, crying for non-existent mothers or feigning illness, or rushing madly around crying, Stop thief! in every direction, while the clutchers made off with their prizes. Each orphan was shaken down by an older or larger child after returning to the graveyard from any visit outside. Anything stolen or gathered was passed through the hierarchy of bruisers and bullies until it reached the thief-maker, who ticked off names on an eerily accurate mental list as the day's catch came in. Those who produced got to eat. Those who didn't got to practice twice as hard that evening. Night after night, the thief-maker would parade around the warrens of Shades Hill, laden down with money pouches, silk handkerchiefs, necklaces, metal coat buttons, and a dozen other sorts of valuable oddments. His wards would strike at him from concealment or by feigned accident. Those he spotted or felt in the act were immediately punished. The thief-maker preferred not to beat the losers of these training games, though he could work a mean switch when the mood was upon him. Rather, they were forced to drink from a flask of unalloyed ginger oil while their peers gathered around and chanted derisively. Kamori ginger oil is rough stuff, not entirely incomparable, as the thief-maker himself opined, to swallowing the smouldering ashes of poison oak. Those who wouldn't open their mouths had it poured into their noses, while older children held them upside down. This never had to happen twice to anyone. In time, even those with ginger-scalded tongues and swollen throats learned the rudiments of coat-teasing and borrowing from the wares of unwary merchants. The thief-maker enthusiastically instructed them in the architecture of doublets, waistcoats, frock-coats, and belt-pouches, keeping up with all the latest fashions as they came off the docks. His wards learned what could be cut away, what could be torn away, and what must be teased out with deft fingers. The point, my loves, is not to hump the subject's leg like a dog, or clutch their hand like a lost babe. Half a second of actual contact with the subject is often too long by far. The thief-maker mimed a noose going around his neck, and let his tongue bulge out past his teeth. 
You will live or die by three sacred rules. First, always ensure that the subject is nicely distracted, either by your teasers or by some convenient bit of unrelated bumfuckery, like a fight or a house fire. House fires are marvellous for our purposes. Cherish them. Second, minimise, and I damn well mean minimise, contact with the subject even when they are distracted. He released himself from his invisible noose and grinned slyly. Lastly, once you've done your business, clear the vicinity even if the subject is as dumb as a box of hammers. What did I teach you? Clutch once, then run, his students chanted. Clutch twice, get hung. New orphans came in by ones and twos. Older children seemed to leave the hill every few weeks with little ceremony. Locke presumed that this was evidence of some category of discipline well beyond ginger oil, but he never asked, as he was too low in the hill's pecking order to risk it or trust the answers he would get. As for his own training, Locke went to streets the day after he arrived and was immediately thrown in with the teasers, punitively, he suspected. By the end of his second month, his skills had secured him elevation to the ranks of the clutchers. This was considered a step up in social status, but Lamora alone in the entire hill seemed to prefer working with the teasers long after he was entitled to stop. He was sullen and friendless inside the hill, but teasing brought him to life. He perfected the use of over-chewed orange pulp as a substitute for vomit. Where other teasers would simply clutch their stomachs and moan, Locke would season his performances by spewing a mouthful of warm white and orange slop at the feet of his intended audience, or, if he was in a particularly perverse mood, all over their dress hems or leggings. Another favourite device of his was a long dry twig concealed in one leg of his breeches and tied to his ankle. By rapidly going down to his knees, he could snap this twig with an audible noise. This, followed by a piercing wail, was an effective magnet for attention and sympathy, especially in the immediate vicinity of a wagon wheel. When he'd teased the crowd long enough, he would be rescued from further attention by the arrival of several other teasers, who would loudly announce that they were dragging him home to mother, so he could see a physicer. His ability to walk would be miraculously recovered just as soon as he was hauled around a corner. In fact, he worked up a repertoire of artful teases so rapidly that the thief-maker had cause to take him aside for a second private conversation. This after Locke arranged the inconvenient public collapse of a young lady's skirt and bodice with a few swift strokes of a finger-knife. "'Look here, Locke after your father, Lamora,' the thief-maker said. No ginger oil this time, I assure you, but I would greatly prefer your teases to veer sharply from the entertaining and back to the practical. Locke merely stared up at him and shuffled his feet. I shall speak plainly, then. The other teasers are going out day after day to watch you, not to do their bloody jobs. I'm not feeding my own private theatre troupe. Get my crew of happy little jack-offs back to their own teasing, and quit being such a celebrity with your own. For a time after that, everything was serene. 
Then, barely six months after he arrived at the hill, Locke accidentally burned down the Elderglass Vine Tavern and precipitated a quarantine riot that very nearly wiped the Narrows from the map of Camor. The Narrows was a valley of warrens and hovels at the northernmost tip of the bad part of the city. Kidney-shaped and something like a vast amphitheatre, the island's heart was forty-odd feet beneath its outer edges. Leaning rows of tenement houses and windowless shops jutted from the tiers of this great seething bowl. Wall collapsed against wall, and alley folded upon mist-silvered alley, so that no level of the narrows could be traversed by more than two men walking abreast. The elder-glass vine crouched over the cobblestones of the road that passed west, and crossed via stone bridge from the narrows into the green depths of the Mare Camarazza. It was a sagging three-story beast of weather-warped wood, with rickety stairs inside and out that maimed at least one patron a week. Indeed, there was a lively pool going as to which of the regulars would be the next to crack his skull. It was a haunt of pipe-smokers and of gaze addicts, who would squeeze the precious drops of their drug onto their eyeballs in public and lie there shuddering with visions while strangers went through their belongings or used them as tables. The seventy-seventh year of Morgante had just arrived when Loch Lamora burst into the common room of the Elderglass Vine, sobbing and sniffling, his face showing the red cheeks, bleeding lips and bruised eyes that were characteristic of Black Whisper. "'Please, sir,' he whispered to a horrified bouncer while dice-throwers, bartenders, whores and thieves stopped to stare. "'Please! Mother and father are sick! I don't know what's wrong with them!' I'm the only one who can move. You must... Sniff. Help! Please, sir! At least that's what would have been heard had the bouncer not triggered a headlong exodus from the elder glass vine by screaming, Whisper! Black Whisper! at the top of his lungs. No boy of Locke's size could have survived the ensuing orgy of shoving and panic had not the badge of illness on his face been better than any shield. Dice clattered to tabletops and cards fluttered down like falling leaves. Tin mugs and tarred leather ale jacks spattered cheap liquor as they hit the floor. Tables were overturned, knives and clubs were pulled to prod others into flight, and gazers were trampled as an undisciplined wave of human detritus surged out every door save that in which Locke stood, pleading uselessly, or so it seemed, to screams and turned backs. When the tavern had cleared of everyone but a few moaning or motionless gazers, Locke's companions stole in behind him, a dozen of the fastest teasers and clutchers in streets, specially invited by Lamora for this expedition. They spread out among the fallen tables and behind the battered bar, plucking wildly at anything valuable. Here a handful of discarded coins, there a good knife. Here a set of whalebone dice with tiny garnet chips for markers. From the pantry baskets of coarse but serviceable bread, salted butter in grease paper, and a dozen bottles of wine. Half a minute was all Locke allowed them, counting in his head while he rubbed his make-up from his face. By the end of the count he motioned his associates back out into the night. Riot drums were already beating to summon the watch and above their rhythm could be heard the first faint flutings of pipes, the bone-chilling sound that called out the Duke's ghouls, the quarantine guard. 
the participants in Locke's smash-and-grab adventure threaded their way through the growing crowds of confused and panicked Narrows dwellers, and scuttled home indirectly through the Mara Kamaratsa or the Coal Smoke District. They returned with the largest haul of goods and food in the memory of the Shades Hill orphans, and a larger pile of copper half-barons than Locke had hoped for. He hadn't known that men who played at dice or cards kept money out in plain view, for in Shades Hill such games were the exclusive domain of the oldest and most popular orphans, and he was neither. For a few hours the thief-maker was merely bemused. But that night panicked drunks set fire to the elder-glass vine, and hundreds tried to flee the narrows when the city watch was unable to locate the boy who'd first triggered the panic. Riot drums beat until dawn, bridges were blocked, and Duke Nicovante's archers took to the canals around the narrows in flat-bottomed boats with arrows to last all night and then some. The next morning found the thief-maker once again in private conversation with his little plague orphan. The problem with you, Locke-fucking-Lamora, is that you are not circumspect. Do you know what circumspect means? Locke shook his head. Let me put it like this. That tavern had an owner. That owner worked for Kappa Barsavi, the big man himself, just like I do. Now, that tavern owner paid the Kappa, just like I do, to avoid accidents. Thanks to you, he's had one hell of an accident even though he was paying his money and didn't have an accident forthcoming. So if you follow me, inciting a pack of drunk fucking animals to burn that place to the ground with a fake plague scare was the opposite of a circumspect means of operation. So now can you venture a guess as to what the word means? Locke knew a good time to nod vigorously when he heard it. Unlike the last time you tried to send me to an early grave, this one I can't buy my way out of, and thank the gods I don't need to, because the mess is huge. The Yellow Jackets clubbed down 200 people last night before they all figured out that nobody had the whisper. The Duke called out his fucking regulars and was about to give the Narrows a good scrubbing with fire oil. Now, the only reason, and I mean the only reason, that you're not floating in a shark's stomach with a very surprised expression on your face is that the elder glass vine is just a pile of ashes. Nobody knows anything was stolen from it before it became that pile of ashes. Nobody except us. So, we're all going to agree that nobody in this hill knows anything about what happened, and you are going to relearn some of that reticence I talked about when you first arrived here. You remember reticence, right? Locke nodded. I just want nice, neat little jobs from you, Lamora. I want a purse here, a sausage there. I want you to swallow your ambition, shit it out like a bad meal, and be a circumspect little teaser for about the next thousand years. Can you do that for me?
Don't rob any more yellow jackets. Don't burn any more taverns. Don't start any more fucking riots. Just pretend to be a coarse-witted little cut purse like your brothers and sisters. Clear? Again, Locke nodded, doing his best to look rueful. Good. And now, the thief maker said as he produced his nearly full flask of ginger oil. We're going to engage in some reinforcement of my admonishments. And for a time, once Locke recovered his powers of speech and unlaboured breathing, everything was serene. But the seventy-seventh year of Morgante became the seventy-seventh year of Sendovani, and though Locke succeeded in hiding his actions from the thief-maker for a time, on one more specific occasion he again failed spectacularly to be circumspect. When the thief-maker realized what the boy had done, he went to see the cupper of Camor and secured permission for one little death. Only as an afterthought did he go to see the eyeless priest, intent not on mercy, but on one last chance for a slim profit.' 